Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is The Remnant. This week's episode is brought to you uh, by Conversations with Bill Crystal. We'll have more about that uh, later on in the show. Um, I also want to thank everybody. We broke 2,000 reviews on iTunes, which was very exciting. And actually, Jack, I don't know if I told you this, but so uh, and we'll, we'll talk about book tour stuff in a little bit, but I saw... Ben Shapiro, when I saw Ben Shapiro out at his evil James Bond villain headquarters, um, he tells me that, you know how I'm like the monkey in the cocaine study hitting refresh on the iTunes ranking of the podcast sometimes? Yes. I don't do it as much as I used to. Less cocaine. Less cocaine. Uh, but, and I, I to the idea, one of the things that drives me crazy is how the new and noteworthy podcasts at the top of the page on iTunes have been the same ones. Like, like Laura Ingram is an old friend of mine, but it's not a new and noteworthy podcast. But anyway, but um, he says that the thing that drives those rankings isn't listeners; it's reviews or velocity of reviews or something like that. I am very skeptical of this. Like yeah. I, 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 I have a hard time believing that if all of my listeners of this podcast took time off from buying more copies of the book to leave reviews at iTunes that somehow I would be the number one podcast in America according to iTunes, right? Yeah, but Ben Shapiro is ranked pretty highly. He is, but he also has like a million downloads a day. Yeah. And he has a five-day-a-week podcast and then bonus one on Sunday, right? So so my, he may be right that part of the algorithm, but I would like to test this. If listeners could like just deluged iTunes <laughs> and we'll see what it does to the rankings um, and maybe we can just sort of, you know, you know, do a behold the God that bleeds thing with Shapiro and point out that he doesn't know everything. Yeah, and if there are any listeners who have access to uh, some Russian troll farms, we will not be – we'll look the other way if you uh, put them to our – and put them in our service. That's right, and it have to be five-star reviews or maybe four-star reviews. Actually, more topical ones that are relevant to the show are even better. And remember, you know, whether you love me or hate me, hate this podcast, all that kind of stuff – if you need a motivation to do to leave a review at iTunes, at least a positive one, you just got to remember that every time you do, a little bit of John Podhoritz dies inside. And that's really only the only motivation that you need. So I actually want to start with some, some somber news, but I'm not going to do it in a somber way. We had some really bad news in the Goldberg family this week. Uh, I shouldn't say just the Goldberg family because it's my wife's side of the family. My wife's dad, Paul Gavora, passed away. And, you know, as these things are, it came as a shock but not a surprise. His health hadn't been great. He was getting up there. He had been had been struggling. And I'm going to write, you know, something more considered and all the rest. But I know I've mentioned him a bunch of times. I've probably mentioned him almost as much as I've mentioned my own dad. And uh, Paul Gavora, whose real name was Vlad, which obviously is awesome. <laughs> I didn't um, know that. <laughs> yeah, um, only, only uh, I didn't know that only his wife was allowed to call him Vlad, and so for like the first year, I called him Vlad all the time, and everyone just kind of looked at me funny. So I've talked about him a little bit on here, and I know I did on Glop a few years ago. Paul Gavora is one of the most impressive men I have ever met, and 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 easily one of the most manly, both in these sort of traditional way, but also in a sort of the mensch-like way that my, that my people talk of. Paul 
literally, and when I say literally, I don't mean figuratively the way Joe Biden means literally, uh, swam the Danube to escape the communists when he was a teenager. He saw crazy stuff in Slovakia. His village was taken over by both communists and Nazis. And, uh, you know, there's some stories that he just would never tell. But I think one of the ones he did tell was about how I think the the Red Army um, commandeered their house and operated on a dude on their kitchen table. I mean, he saw some stuff. And... Isn't that like the origin story of Hannibal Lecter or something like that? There's some of that, yeah. But that's – my father-in-law did not eat people. He, he was um, – so he was this – but he was this amazing guy. He finished – Went. he spent – I think he basically walked to Austria, spent like a year in a refugee camp and then finished high school in Germany and then came to the States on a scholarship. At the, I think it was the University of Colorado where he met his wife Donna, this amazing woman. And they trans- he transferred to the University of Chicago where he got a master's from Milton Friedman. Um, and he has all these stories about – had all these stories about Milton Friedman. And uh, they had a great falling out because on his final exam, Paul finished first and very confidently walked – dropped the test on the desk and walked out of the room and then got a bad grade on it. And he stormed into Milton Friedman's office and had some words that he would later regret and – Freeman said, you know, why are you yelling at me? You left the whole page blank. And Paul was like, I didn't leave the whole page blank. I was the first to finish if there was, you know. And so it was forever this argument about whether or not there was a missing last page or whatever. But Paul moved to Fairbanks, Alaska with four kids. I think it was four kids at the time and a pregnant wife. And when he got to Alaska, the uh, the teaching job that he went up there for at the university was gone. And so he, again, literally went through the want ads basically alphabetically, <laughs> calling, looking for a job. I think he started as – it gets a little murky. started as a milkman for, I think, a grocery store. Ended up buying out the grocery store, buying out another grocery store. At the height of his empire, They he was owned a whole bunch of grocery stores. There's still a sort of a strip mall named after um, my father-in-law, the Gavora Mall in Fairbanks. And they raised nine kids in Fairbanks, Alaska. And uh, But I just to give you a sense of the guy, whenever one of the kids talked about what, like, what they wanted to do for a career, you know, lawyer, doctor, whatever, Paul's first question was, yeah, but can you eat it? <laughs> and the point being is that he was a big believer in, in having businesses that were directly grounded in – basic human needs and not getting too clever. That's why he owned land. He sold food. And uh, I think it's, it was sort of a really interesting way to um, think about things. He also, I mean, I, I should be, you know, fair. He looked like the minister of the interior in the Ukrainian polar bureau circa 1973. I mean, he, <laughs> he was a little bit of an East European Archie Bunker and very, very gruff. But Really, a, ultimately, a really brilliant guy. And so, like, he would say things like, oh, that is very communistic. And I'd be like, what do you mean, Paul? And he's not used to being having people question his pronouncements, right? And so <laughs> he, he would he would look at me, and then you look around to make sure that no one, you know, noticed that he was sort of giving it, you know, he was appeasing my curiosity. And he, he would say, well, it has to do with like the market equilibrium and how you know how these different factors play. <clears throat> but probably my favorite story about Paul. So I was on a fishing trip 
with Paul and a couple of my brothers-in-law and a f- friend of the family and me and Paul's oldest son, Dan, were sitting uh, at the kitchen table and having drinks and Paul had gone to sleep and the subject of seasickness came up just sort of randomly and Dan just sort of very matter-of-factedly, offhandedly, as if I knew what he was talking about, says, well, yeah, you know what, you know, you know, my dad doesn't get seasick. And I was like, what do you mean he doesn't get seasick? He said it in a really kind of weird way. And uh, I was like, what do you mean he doesn't get seasick? Well, he goes, you know, he doesn't get seasick. You know the story. I'm like, no, what, what story? And so Dan proceeds to tell me the story about how, at least this is the version I remember of it, um, where, so... Paul comes to the States. He pays for his passage by working as a crewman on a transport boat, bringing, I guess, other refugees or passengers. I'm not sure. Right. Lots of population flows back then. And they're in the North Atlantic and they hit really bad weather. I mean, like release the Kraken kind of perfect storm, crazy swells kind of weather. And the captain orders... All of non, all the passengers, all non-essential crew, basically, into, I guess, the dining room or the cafeteria, whatever, the biggest room at the lowest level of the ship, right? And, and basically closes them in there. And the captain knows that hours of sustained huge swells where the boat feels like it's going to tip over one way or the other or it's diving or whatever, um, that, first of all, people are going to vomit like you wouldn't believe, but they're also just going to panic, right? You get, people get claustrophobic, particularly when, if you lose the lights and people panic and they and the air gets really rancid and thin and he just knew that this was going to happen and that someone that people are going to start rushing to the decks for air, right? And so my father-in-law's job was to stand at the top of these stairs from the exit that they would have been coming up, uh, lashed to the railing on the deck, so he didn't get swept over in like five minutes. And he was given a billy club. And his job was when these fleeing, panicked passengers come rushing saying, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Um, you know, full of like claustrophobic, um, oxygen-deprived panic. Um, his job was to, if necessary, crack them in the skull, kick them in the chest down the stairs and save their lives. Because they would have been swept off the deck in seconds. And he apparently did this. All night long, <laughs> and so, so he he does he doesn't he doesn't get seasick. <laughs> um, that was the reason he doesn't get seasick. So anyway, um, I really loved uh, my father-in-law. He was a really just an amazingly impressive man. He cared immensely about his family and about his community. And I, you know, these things I've been when my dad died, it was devastating. I I, I know what my wife is going through. And my in-laws, who I care about a great deal, but this was a f- unbelievably full and successful life. And he raised a bunch of great kids. And you know, in the great uh, grandkid wars, wars between the Goldbergs and the Gavoras, um, it really was sort of like uh, Bambi versus Godzilla. Because uh, on my mom, on my side, we have one. My mom has one grandkid, and I. Not sure of the final count with the Gavoras, but I believe it is high 20s, low 30s, something like that. And so, you know, it was a – they did an amazing thing. You know, Paul and Donna did an amazing thing raising these kids 
in a place where, by our standards, it was often too cold and too dark to play outside for most of the year. <laughs> and um, and he built an amazing business, and um, but never lost sight of his family. And so uh, I just wanted to get that out there because he plays a huge part of my life, and he'll be sorely missed. So anyway, I don't want to be morbid. I just I really wanted to get that out there because I think I'm a big believer in my own life about the most important thing you can do when when loved ones pass away is talk about them and remember them. Uh, you know, this is a big theme in the book about the necessary the, the necessity of remembering that memory is is not just simply your mental recall. It's an active verb. You know, it's in the Bible. It, keep the Sabbath, you know, remember the Sabbath and all those sorts of things are honor. It is, it's tied up with the idea of honoring. It's an activity. And the easiest way to forget about, you know, loved ones is just stop talking about them. And so I just wanted to do that. Yeah. My, uh, a couple of years ago, a, a, a sort of, for my family, a larger than life figure, my mom's father died and he produced these memoirs and the last, he wrote an epilogue to them, obviously before he died. And the last words he says are, Think of me from time to time, as though we would have trouble um, <laughs> not doing that otherwise. But it's good advice and, yeah. and to, to posterity, and we do our best to remember to do that. I mean, that's the thing that drives me crazy every year with these idiotic pants-wetting, you know, articles about how you, how you can talk about Trump at the Thanksgiving table and all that kind of stuff. I, I hate that stuff. Those people, people who write those articles go to Friendsgiving, not Thanksgiving. Yeah, Let's I think be that's honest. probably right. I, I think at Thanksgiving, you're supposed to tell the same stories and maybe some new stories about your friends, family, and loved ones, and 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 that's it, you know? It should be the time for the same jokes. You know, that's why every Thanksgiving, my entire life when my dad was alive, he would always at the end of the meal look at the carcass of the turkey you know, just like the ribs showing and it all cut up. And he would turn to me and absolutely deadpan, ask me, Jonah, do you think that if we got the world's greatest scientists and doctors together, there'd be any chance of saving this bird's life? <laughs> and I laughed every year my entire life. <laughs> and um, the, he also always used to say, as he was carving the turkey. Yeah, this is the one I was waiting for. Yeah. It involves aliens. Yeah. He says, you know, if there was an alien planet of super intelligent turkeys and somehow they saw video of this, first of all, they would think it was the greatest horror they'd ever seen. But second of all, it would probably launch a war or some version of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, I like telling those kinds of stories. All right. So this episode, we have no guest. We have Jack back. It's just me and Jack. We're going to do a little punditry. But basically, I'm thinking... In, in homage to the G file, this is more of a various and sundry podcast. I mean, you are still putting the scattered pieces of your soul back together after your hellacious, the hellacious rigor of your book tour. I am, I am appropriate. So let's see. Last last week, it was no, the week before last, it was New York, Chicago, Austin, Dallas, DC for the podcast summit. A day and a half at home for Mother's Day, and then it was San Francisco. Uh, Yorba Linda, L.A., Colorado, which I got back from on Sunday. I went to the Weekly Standard Summit, and um, which was a lot of fun. We can talk about that if you want. It is, you know, it's definitely one of the top two conservative magazines in America. <laughs> and um, and then I was supposed to go to Phoenix, but this event that I was supposed to do with, do with Hugh Hewitt got canceled, which was disappointing for on the book front. But I was so happy to come home because <laughs> I was sick for half of this thing and. 
and just feeling miserable. And then on Thursday, I'm at Kenyon College in Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's some trips coming up in Florida. All of us should be on the website somewhere, right? Uh, well, I have to figure out which of it is publicly uh, yeah. admissible information and which isn't. As of right now, I'm on the books to be at the Chicago Literary Festival on like June 9 and 10. Anyway, so there's a bunch of that stuff, but you can check the website. And if, you know, if Jack's not failing, uh, it'll... big if. Yeah. So a few things. One, <laughs> so I had this... I, I had this speech at the and I haven't told you this yet at the Nixon Library and which was fun. I did not really realize. I mean, I know it was on the itinerary. I didn't quite realize what I was getting myself into. Uh, I drive from the John Wayne Airport, right, the Orange County Airport, to Yorba Linda, which is only like twenty minutes away or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the head of the library and the executive director are meet me in the parking lot, and gave me a 90-minute, almost two-hour tour of the Nixon Library, which was fascinating. I mean, I actually enjoyed it, you know, and I have some history with all that. You know, my brother's godfather was this guy, Victor Lasky, this guy who wrote, uh, a, you know, it didn't start with Watergate and a bunch of that kind of stuff. And my mom was involved in some uh, interesting things back then. And um, <laughs> so... Understatement. Uh, yeah. I mean, my first memory, well, I think maybe my first memory or close to it was... My parents yelling at me to stay quiet during the Watergate hearings. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait! You were you were at them, or are you just watching them? They're wa- watching them on TV. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> and I'm sure I have an earlier memory because that would that would make me about four and a half, five. I guess. Yeah. Um, maybe four. But I want to. Uh, I I'm, I'm sort of disappointed that now I can't picture young Joan Goldberg like accidentally. I don't know, knocking over something Hillary Clinton was carrying. No, yeah, because <laughs> she was around there she too. Wa- she was. She was. Um, and. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, it was, it was, it was fascinating. It was interesting. I, there, there's, you know, Nixon is one of the most interesting political figures because he was, he was there for all of it. Right. I mean, this is a guy who was a two-term vice president under Eisenhower. He was in Congress. He was in the army. And I got my differences with Nixon on a bunch of stuff, obviously. Um, so anyway, then on the schedule is this lunch. And I thought it was going to be a lunch with like donors or something like that, right? Instead, it was just with me, the head of the Nixon Library, and his, and a couple researchers and other of that. And then Jack Fowler and uh, Jason Weiss from National Review were there for it. And we're eating, you know, catered sandwiches kind of thing and drinking sodas, sitting around a boardroom table making chit-chat. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the head of it turns to me and says, So Jonah, we were thinking... You might have some, you know, some thoughts for us about how we could use social media, podcasting, and other things like that to get more people, particularly young people, interested in the legacy of Richard Nixon. <laughs> and I was like, you know, mid-bite. It's like, you know, I got to be honest, I, uh, I haven't put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> um, but um, I actually, after frumfering around for a while, they didn't like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to revealed too much because they didn't know I was going to repeat any of this. But, you know, my first answer was was sort of make it, you know, make it clear to people that there used to be this liberal Republican tradition, which I'm not a huge fan of, but that Nixon was part of. But this guy, Frank Gannon, the head of it, you know, actually gave me some really interesting pushback on that, you know, because that Nixon had a Democratic Congress to work with his entire time. And there were, he was more conservative than people think. I'm interested in that, but I'm not sure I'm convinced. Uh, for, I mean, he, he was a Whitaker Chambers ally, perhaps the most important one. He was a close friend of Whitaker Chambers. He was a correspondent with Whitaker Chambers. Um, they showed us some really cool, like, 
uh, stuff from the archives that Nixon had written to Buckley and back and forth. I mean, this, he was in on everything. I mean, he was really and he was smart dude, Nixon. But it's a little bit, you know, you know, how was the theater, Mrs. Lincoln, kind of thing about you know leaving all that the rest out. But I then came up with this idea that you know there are basically two kinds of podcasts. There's basically conversation podcasts or a discussion, interview, you know, talking people podcasts. And then there's the other kind of podcast, which is essentially like long form documentary stuff, right? Where mm-hmm. you're telling, or just repertorial journalism, where you're telling a story, right? This American Life does that, Serial does that, all that kind of stuff. Well, they have access to all of this amazing stuff, right? All these memos, all these tapes, obviously. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, I've, yeah, I've heard uh, of the tapes. And, um, uh, and like, so they were saying that Nixon almost left politics to become the head of Major League Baseball <laughs> and really was tempted to do it. He really wanted to do it. I think you could do a fantastic 25, 30 minutes on these little aspects of Nixon's life. Don't make it all, you know, save Watergate for later. Other people are doing Watergate. Uh-huh. Do all the other stuff, like the Helen Gahagan Douglas stuff from the, the 50s. You know, one of the reasons why the left always hated Nixon is that he was a great red baiter and anti-communist, and he was right about a lot of the things that the left insisted he was wrong on in the 1950s. And do those kinds of vignettes, you know, and you could do like interviews and you can do readings from documents, playing tapes and just do a bunch of, you know, not not opining one way or the other. I think it would be kind of really interesting. But anyway, I'd also recommend uh, selectively sampling parts of the Nixon tapes into rap music. I think that would that would, the, the youth would be really into that. I think that. that yes. Hello, y- fellow young people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so other things on the book tour, uh, we sold out, which was great, uh, the Capacity Room at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and the audio from that should be available sometime soon. Oh, yeah. I, I checked on that at some time last week, but it wasn't there, but I'll check again. And um, and it's funny. I, I finally did, uh, what's his name, Michael Krasny, um, the, the KQED guy in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I did his show. Very nice guy. Obviously, we don't see her completely eye to eye politically, but I thought he was completely fair. But it's funny. The listeners, you would think, you know, I'm doing this, I'm giving this talk about how identity politics is terrible and blah, 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 blah. And they know I'm a conservative and I'm in the belly of the beast of San Francisco and, you know, San Francisco NPR station. (laughs) And where, you know, you can basically hear the ponytails of the callers. And, um, And the thing that animated like the last, I don't know, two, three, four, I can't remember. It just seemed, because it seems so incongruous, particularly in my cold medicine haze. The thing that infuriated listeners was that I wouldn't condemn the Citizens United case. Yeah. I listened to your interview there and I I found that, I found that mystifying as well. Yeah, it was very, and and it's funny. I run into this. I keep forgetting that I keep running in, you run into this a lot on the left. The left is made, the Citizens United is sort of for segments of the left what Benghazi was for segments of the right. You know, it is the it, it becomes the sort of totem linchpin that explains all of the evils of everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not saying that Benghazi wasn't a real story, but there were some people on the right who, you know, thought it was a, a grander affair than it was. I think you could just look at the actual known facts and realize it was a horrible story. And Citizens United, I get that there are reasonable criticisms of it, but the idea that, you know, this is, you know, this is how, you know, Thanos is going to destroy half of the universe through <laughs> Citizens United. It was just, it was very, very weird. And then um, did the Weekly Standard Summit, 
that went well. Had a fun talk there. Got to hang out with the lovely and talented A.B. Stoddard. Oh, and I saw... And the slovenly and untalented... Oh, wait. I can't say this. You can say what you want about Steve Hayes. Yeah, you, you should probably shouldn't throw him under the bus. Yeah. Um, I'm just... Here, if you want to say anything about Steve Hayes now, uh, there, there's your opening. Uh, Sorry, Steve. Yeah. Steve... Steve did a great job at this thing, and it was fun, and uh, I think he's doing a really good job, you know, as editor. Um, I... I, I'm amazed he can get as much work done as he can while always having that sort of buffalo sauce on his fingers. <laughs> but uh, um, and I saw my friend Scott Hall, who, uh, as you know, you've met him, uh, is a, uh, a fundraiser for Hillsdale College, lives in Colorado Springs, and he is the creator of the Scott Hall Martini, um, which I've mentioned here before. I discussed with Andy Ferguson and others. It was a huge fight about it on episode 11, and it turns out. I was getting the recipe wrong. I think it's actually two-thirds Boodle's gin, one-third some kind of vodka. I thought it was 50-50 gin and vodka chilled to 33 degrees. It does have to be chilled to 33 degrees. But Scott says every time I mention the Scott Hall martini, someone texts him almost immediately and says, oh, my gosh, they're talking about your martini again on, on the remnant. So there you go. And I wish he has these – he has the, he didn't have them printed up. A friend had them. Cards printed up that you can give to a bartender that say, I would like a Scott Hall martini with, <laughs> with the instructions on them. And I meant to bring it into the office here um, in case I, so I could just at least remember the whole thing, but I'll take a picture of it and we can put it on the, um, uh, in the show notes, at least through Twitter or something like that. So while I've been off out in the world, self-medicating and, and, and selling this book, you've been here actually like reading what people are saying about it. Yes, I have. Uh, and it's sort of interesting for me because I obviously did not write the book. Um, but you know the book intimately well. <laughs> yes, we're very good friends. How many we, times would you say you've read the totality of the book? I've been thinking about this, I would say, at least four times. Mm -hmm. uh, I think is a safe estimate. Yeah. I'm obviously And not... then parts of it more. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I, you've read it more than I have. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, it'll probably be a couple of decades before I feel ready to actually just read it in the copy that I have. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because right now I don't. I just I look at it and I just I I I can't even I can't even process the words anymore. Well, it's, they slide right off my brain. It's a uh, well, it's fine. It's sort of like that scene in the Matrix. You know, I don't even see people. I you know, I don't even see the code anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it's actually it, this is a funny phenomenon. When I was a television producer. You know, you agonize editing something from an hour to a half hour, and then you watch the final product. You can't unsee the stuff that's missing, mm -hmm. right? And this is a similar problem with writing is that you remember what was cut, right? And so one of the problems I get on the road is people say, how come you didn't write about whatever? And I was like, well, that's one of the chapters that was cut. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, it's really hard to read the final product when you've gone over it so many times. Knowing what's not, the, knowing what exists but isn't there, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Or remembering what a pain in the ass certain things were to find or prove that no one t even second guesses, you know? Yeah. But I have to say, I, I, I saw full disclosure, I haven't read a lot of the negative reviews because either from Jack's synopsis of them or just from the obvious bad faith of the first paragraph, I'm like, I if I read this, it will make me angry and then I will have to respond to it. <laughs> um <laughs> And you only have so much writerly juice in you. And if you're pissed off about something, at least for me, you know, uh, anger and frustration are a muse. Um, if you see something infuriating on TV, 
that is a great way to gin up 750 words. Yeah, wasn't that Buckley's advice to George Will? Yes, and I write about that in Tyranny Clichés where when George Will got a column and he was supposed to write twice a week, he called Bill Buckley and said, how the hell am I going to write two columns a week? And Bill said, oh, that's easy. At least at least two things a week will annoy you. Write about those things. And so anyway, my point is is that I got a lot of other deadlines if I start reading really dumb, bad faith stuff from people, some of whom were obviously sort of clickbait whoring, you know, that, you know, would love for me to respond. I just tend to ignore it and I figure I'll get to it at some point down the road. But you've actually been, but I've asked you to sort of make sure you, we have all of the reviews and in some form, some place, right? Yeah, they're locked away in a vault somewhere when you're ready for them. What would you say is the best criticism of the book? Uh, well, the Adam Kuyper's review for the Weekly Standard, which was on the whole positive, uh, sort of singled you out for not going into some uh, more technologically based threats to the or inducements to the West suicide, uh, which was a little. It was unexpected because that's not really what the book is about. But at the same time, it's not something I don't think you'd necessarily disagree with what he said, because I know you've talked, I, I think, on even on this podcast before about things like the rise of VR and sex robots. Mm-hmm. Um, are, talked about it with Ben Sass, Charles Murray, Arthur yeah. Brooks, a bunch of people. Surprised we didn't talk about sex robots with Ross Douthat because he's apparently uh, one of his one of his flood subjects. But yeah, so that was a that was an interesting review, and it was a good faith. Um, criticism but again yeah. that's not really what that's not really what this particular book was about no and look at it i i think that's a, i mean again i'd have to see how he exactly he phrases it but i've written a bunch um over the years about technology you know being a greater threat to establish norms and order than and traditions than ideas are and i or often it can be a greater threat i mean i remember reviewing what was her name? Wendy Shalit's book for Reason Magazine. Um, this is like 15 years ago and uh, maybe 20. Gosh. And, uh, you know, part of the problem is, particularly on the right, conservatives love to argue about ideas, or at least they used to. Um, <laughs> and, um, and you know, and that leads conservatives in particular, conservative intellectuals in particular, to sort of as Richard Weaver said in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, to believe that ideas have consequences, right? And that's that's true. Ideas certainly have consequences. That's a big takeaway from my book, right? That's the stuff I get from Deirdre McCloskey and others. But at the same time, not every bad development is an escape disease from some German laboratory, right? You know, the Frankfurt School or something. Nietzsche had profound consequences for Western civilization, but the automobile probably had bigger ones. And the thing is, you can argue with Nietzsche. You can't really, you know, argue with, you know, a Buick. And um, I'm not going to let that stop me. <laughs> and uh, and so and this was ultimately what um, Whitaker Chambers met when he referred to, you know, Whitaker Chambers, one of the most heroic figures on the American right, very close friend of William F. Buckley, is writer, for, frequent writer for National Review one of the most glorious anti-communists in, in American history, never called himself a conservative, even after he sort of joined our, when he said he was leaving the winning side, communism for the losing side, you know, Western civilization. Um, he called himself a man of the right. And the reason why he did was he was, um, which I've written a bunch about, It's I used to write about it in G-Files all the time. Um, I think I, I think there was a G-File called Thingamabobs Have Consequences. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah. That was the... the... 
I believe in that G file you you sort of solicited readers uh, to give you examples of times that technology has altered the course of history. Yeah, I think that's right. And then uh, I remember Charles Murray sent me an email saying that there was a line, I think, from Carl Hess about how, what was it, um, hand tools have done more to shape the course of human events than Jesus did or something like I mean, some something Some line I do not want attributed to me, but I'll find it. Um, <coughs> but anyway, um, Chambers had this thing where you, which he called the Beaconsfield position, Pop quiz, Jack. Where does the phrase Beaconsfield come from? Uh, British Prime Minister of the 19th century? Close. It was uh, Disraeli's district. He was where it was his title. He was like the Earl of Beaconsfield, something like that. So the Beaconsfield position, which is really the Disraeli position, but Chambers was being clever, um, uh, is that you have to sort of move with the times and that um, the, the... means of production are still the biggest driver of human affairs that you need to sort of account for the changes that technology have on society. And the problem with conservatism is they don't want to pay too much attention to that. Um, So you're saying we need to be Marxists, eh? Well, I mean, a lot of these ex-Marxists held on to a lot of that stuff. Like James Burnham. He, mm-hmm. You know, you read, you know, oh, my gosh, all the people giving me a hard time for having the same title as Burnham. It's un- I, I, Who knew? <laughs> uh, and it, a Burnham lot. fanboys come out of the woodwork. And I, look, I, I don't, like, I'm a Burnham fanboy, and I know a lot of, and there are a lot of great and decent people who um, like, who like Burnham a lot, even though Burnham was a pretty dark intellectual in a lot of ways, because he held on to this Marxist you know, fascination and obsession with power relations as the driving force of everything. But uh, I think it's fascinating, and it was it was Michael Brennan Doherty who pointed out to me that, you know, he's also sort of a cult figure on the alt-right, hmm. which I think is kind of fascinating since the guy freaking voted for Rockefeller. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, um, where were we? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is the thing that you get with reviews is... And I'm I'm the first to concede I've been guilty of it in the past. Book reviewers tend to review either the book that they wanted to read, um, or the or or give you a hard time for not writing the book that they wanted to read. And but look, I mean Kuiper's review, as far as I can tell, was still pretty positive. He did, mm-hmm. I did get as far as him calling it baggy, um, which I thought was interesting. And uh, and it sounds like I, I agree with the thesis. It's just and there's some talk in the book about how you know material. Stuff like is is that well that I mean part of the argument of the book is that capitalism and the drive for innovation um, undermines institutions of civil society, which is the sort of Schumpeter point. Um, yeah. So I think that is in the book. It just not be where he wanted to see it or the degree he wanted to see it. Yeah, and there's also talk about in in, in the appendix in which it is it is, it is described how much labor has, the the. The burden of labor has lessened over the centuries. You, you have a line about how actually the, the one of the main challenges of the 21st century might be giving, making sure that people have meaningful work. Right. They don't all just go completely off the grid and right. ready player one themselves. I'm, I'm more and more in favor of smart work requirements, work programs, you know, to get people working. The problem is they can't just be dig a ditch and then fill it up, right? Because mm-hmm. what you need is you need to have some satisfaction from the work and a feeling like you're making a difference in the world. And if it's just make work, that sends exactly the wrong message. Um, any other blistering insights, criticisms of the book that you can think of? I mean, we could 
We could certainly go over all the wonderful things people said about it. Oh, we could do that forever. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there have been many. There have. Which I'm sure you're grateful for. I am very grateful for it. Uh, do you have a favorite review so far? Would it be Yuval Levin's? Partly because it's Yuval. I would say Yuval's was, was great. Um, I would say all up until David Brooks' really weird criticism. Um, I really like David's. Uh, our fa- friend Dave Bonson co-wrote uh, a piece on it that I did read, but I read quickly um, while I was on the road and, and, and you know, drowning cold medicine with Irish whiskey. Um, so I want to go back and read thoughtfully because it was incredibly generous, but it has some, you know, um, some disagreements. Um, and so I really want to revisit that. Uh, oh, and I really, you know, the people on Twitter with the hashtag Suicide of the West, which I hadn't really been paying attention to, so I've been saying some really wonderful things, and thank you very much for that. And I, you know, I will be retweeting many of them. And, um, and of course, the pictures with the dogs um, are always appreciated. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's become a thing. It has. Brand synergy has been achieved. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jake Tapper with these fancy friends from The Ellen Show and Jimmy Kimmel posts all these pictures of... You know, beautiful people reading at the airport his book. And meanwhile, I got people, real Americans with real dogs. <laughs> uh, and I'll take that any day of the week. And then there's this other issue that, that really needs to be discussed, which is the growing cult of Jack Butler. <laughs> but before we get to that, um, I first want to talk to you a little bit about conversations with Bill Crystal. I saw Bill over the weekend at the Broadmoor. Uh, he was, uh, apparently just coming off the same cold that I had. Um, but, uh, he was great to talk to. He just, he was just telling me about a really interesting conversation he had with Paul Begala, which is up now. I haven't watched it yet, but, um, I'm going to, uh, if you don't know, uh, Bill has, yes, there's less Bigfoot erotica than here on the remnant, but that's, that's true of basically every podcast. I, uh, I, I don't know that that's true. Maybe there is a... Yeah, I was going to say. You should hmm. investigate if there is, in fact, a Bigfoot erotica podcast that we could have them on. Oh, uh, well, do I, do I have to do it? Can I... We have an intern now. We do. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, anyway, but back to, to Bill Crystal. Bill does um, these great, long conversations with smart, influential people where everyone has time to talk and explore things and really work things out. And um, I think they're great. A few of the people that they've had on them, uh, they've, he's had on, Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, huh, Chris, <laughs> Christina Summers, Charles Murray, and, and me. I did one fairly recently um, that apparently gave the sads to some people at The Federalist and el- elsewhere for my, the temerity I had in saying that I wanted to use argument and facts and reason to persuade people. Um, How dare you? And, and apparently this is this is the ultimate sign of cuckery, um, is to actually think that we can use the means of the Enlightenment to change people's minds and that somehow um, I need to sort of get out of my lane and um, become some sort of, uh, you know, Jacobin for Trumpism or something. I'm not quite clear exactly what is expected of me. But anyway, what Bill does is he actually talks to people, including people he disagrees with, in a civil way about interesting topics. They go long, which I think is a really good thing. You know, I was listening to the Weekly Standard podcast with Eric Felton uh, yesterday. I should say the Charlie Sykes podcast with guest Eric Felton. And I think Charlie does a fantastic job. It's interesting how uh, people who have careers in radio have certain kind of 
you know, they have muscle memory that, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a lot more fluid and professional than the sort of fare we get here. But anyway, one thing I, one my, one of my complaints though is that he has this obsession with keeping them short. And, um, I think that when podcasts, if, this is something we talked about with Russ Roberts, right? You know, if a podcast on on your two hour podcast, yeah, you know, uh, I haven't heard from a single person saying it was too long, right? Because if you're not interested, you turn it off right away. If you are interested and you like the conversation, you want to hear it keep going, and people just pick up and leave off where they had it in the car and whatnot. And so I'm a big believer in going along when a conversation is working. If we ever have a really short podcast and it's not because of some external deadline, like we have to get out of the studio or something. You can tell you'll be able to tell. I just think it wasn't working. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as I know, I believe the shortest remnant episode so far has been the very first one. Yeah, which was only uh, thirty six minutes or so long. In part because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, um, and it showed. I think. <laughs> and uh, you know, and then sometimes podcasts just go absolutely off the rails, and you don't even run them, which is you know what happened with episode eleven. But we'll get back to that. But that never happens with with Bill Crystal, at least as far as we know. Um, they're thoughtful, polite, decent conversations with interesting people, and you can watch them as a video or you can listen to them as a podcast. Uh, so check it out. You can go to conversationswithbillcrystal.org. That's conversationswithbillcrystal.org. And um, if you like their show and you start listening to it regularly, send them an email saying that you were turned on to them by me because this raises another peeve of mine. All these people on Twitter I'm hearing from saying – I didn't know about Russ Roberts. Thank you so much for turning me on to him. I'm now a fan, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I haven't seen a single tweet from anybody saying, I never heard of Jonah Goldberg or I never listened to Jonah Goldberg, but thanks, Russ Roberts, for having him on. Now I'm a fan. It's like it only goes one way, and, and I don't get it. Yeah, where's your referral bonus? Exactly. And no, maybe we've gotten one, but since we don't have good access to the stats for this thing, thank you, Charlie Cook, we'll, we'll wait and see. And if the iTunes rankings are just this sort of con job, then I have... I'm out here alone on, the, on, a, on a raft at sea. So anyway, troubling development on the road. Enormous number of people came out, said they were fans of the, you know, at these events in Chicago and California and elsewhere, saying they were fans of this podcast, uh, fans of the G-File. That's all nice. Asking about my dogs. I'm used to that. But dismaying number of people. I wouldn't say the majority or by any stretch of the imagination, but – you know, all increases from zero are infinite. Um, a dismaying spike in people asking about Jack. Where's Jack? Did you bring Jack? Why are you so mean to Jack? And, you know, if if this were uh, a, you know, if this were a totalitarian country, if this were like in the movie Gladiator, remember that great scene in Gladiator where they know that, that, that Caesar wants to, that, you know, that... Joaquin Phoenix wants to kill Russell Crowe because he's got a better reputation with the people than the, uh-huh. than the emperor does. And the big goonish uh, fellow gladiator says, you have to, uh, uh, or maybe it was the other guy. It doesn't matter. You have to kill your name before, you know, he kills you, right? And so if I were a less magnanimous leader, the rising cult, if I were, if I, if I were, let's say, in the Trump administration and some member of my cabinet was getting this kind of positive press, um, you could be sure they would be shown the door. But no, I am a kind and generous boss, but it is just a very strange thing how many people are like into Jack. And I, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't really know how to explain it. It's, it's clearly not 
because of the incredibly broad range of 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 vocal sounds you make. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> good one. Um, and uh, and so a bunch of people were like, you know, all right, you know, where's Jack? And I was all the usual jokes about how I left you handcuffed to a radiator with a big bowl of kibble and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Thanks for that, by the way. Yeah, and uh, and a lot of people, you know, were like. Uh, saying how uh, they thought the sort of cruel, you know, the gimp jokes, all of that kind of reek, you know, all those sorts of things that I say about you were funny. But a bunch of people thought I go way too far and they were basically in my wife's camp and that I'm too mean to Jack. And that um, one guy like really pulled me aside and gave me a lecture about how, you know, you, you got to realize that a lot of listeners don't know that you're joking. <laughs> and I was like, are you, are, are you sure I'm joking? <laughs> but... Uh, so it, but it was, it was strange. It yeah. Was very strange. Well, do you want to know how I feel about it? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, to be honest, I, I feel I've lucked it. No, I changed my mind. Uh, Just kidding. <laughs> all right. Well, no, no, no. Go on. on. Go on. Go on. Go on. Go on. I feel, it seems to me that I've lucked into this because you, I, from the beginning, when, once you decided to have a podcast, I already in the position of being your research assistant had to figure out how this worked. Right. And... Once I actually did, then I ended up in the studio, and then I don't even know, I don't remember exactly why or what occasioned the first time I turned my mic in the studio on, but you I, will remember that day as your as the day of your undoing. And, I, I will. I mean, it was like I swallowed strontium-90, and it took forever to kill me. But, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, um, but I, I sort of, uh, I've lucked into this position. You've been generous enough to let my role gradually grow over time. And I, I frankly don't – it doesn't seem to me that I honestly deserve this. I've done really nothing with my life of note so up to this point. my If I entertain people, that's great. But I'm just happy to be here. And it's honestly, it's fine that Jonah's mean to me because it reminds me that I've done nothing really to deserve the prominence. Like the fact that my voice is on a podcast that is listened nationwide, that's, that's just absurd. That shouldn't be. That shouldn't be the case, and so Jonah's cruelty to me reminds me of that, and keeps me humble, keeps me keeps my head small rather than big. Uh, it's the servant whispering in my ear that I'm mortal, so I don't mind. This is very reek like where you're thanking me for my cruelty to you. <laughs> well, I, as a as a runner, I have to enjoy pain, so I'm I'm. This is consistent with my ethos here. Oh, by the way, while I was on the road, listeners, Jack posted a video of him winning. What's the race called? The Flying Pig, Cincinnati Flying Pig Half Marathon. Yeah, and so uh, it's pretty impressive. Jack just just blazes through the tape with um, like nobody around him. Um, it was pretty cool. And well, that's what winning is. Well, I mean, sometimes the race is close. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And uh, and for listeners who don't know, Jack is like a major major runner. He came in fifteenth. Yeah, at the at the Marine Corps Marathon. at the Marine Corps Marathon, right? So so we'll, I mentioned that solely so we have an excuse to. Put the video up on the show notes. Why did the video amuse you? Is that why you want it there? Well, no. I, well, they did. They did make you wear a a laurel or a crown of what do we, what do you call that thing? Uh, yeah, laurel. Laurel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, like you know, one of those things. You know, those things like Apollo would wear. I mean, uh, for because it's weird. Like you never use the phrase laurel literally anymore. Uh huh. Right. It's sort of like I think I told you this. I was at the track. I used to go to track a lot with my friends, and um, one of the rules. Oddly enough, Laurel Racetrack. It just occurred to me. Um, and, uh, Synergy. And uh, I, I remember one day, me and my friend Doug Anderson were looking at the racing forum, and 
I asked him who he was gonna if he was gonna bet on such and such horse, and he was like, "No, I I, I got to look at his track record more." <laughs> and we both were like, "Wait a second, we use track record the way you know it yeah. actually means rather than the way you ever always hear it." So, but it's 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 it it impressed me and it amused me. Uh, That's all I'm here for. Yeah, at least at least the second one of those. All right, so but, uh, but so how do you you're you're disturbed by this cult? You don't think I deserve a conversation with Bill Crystal anytime soon? Uh, no, I don't. Well, yeah. I don't either. And also, you know, for listeners that don't know, I mean, I, I some of this came up in the cranky old man episode of this with Charles Murray and Steve Hayward. But Jack has heard me lecture him, not really lecture him, but lecture interns and other people around many many times about how you can get ruined by a little success in your twenties in in Washington. And I'm not saying that. Being my 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 top banana sideshow Bob, whatever you are, uh, <laughs> is a sign of success. But uh, you know you, you you need to sort of like keep running through the tape in your twenties, career wise. And there are a bunch of people I've seen it happen a million times where some kid writes a heritage backgrounder on you know trade with Taiwan or gets their first op ed in the New York Times, and all of a sudden thinks that. They can coast now, mm-hmm. <laughs> like age twenty-four. Well, that's certainly what I, my plans are. Coasting um, from here on out, I'm so, at the top. So, um, so anyway, I look people. I'm not cruel, Jack. I've been very kind to Jack. At least I think I have. Um, you have. I, um, I'll let you know if you're not. I, I change his water whether he needs it. It looks like he needs it or not. So, Speaking of which I'm very thirsty right now. So, in uh, anything. Oh, so br- very brief book book update. Uh, sales are going well. Thank you to everybody who's bought it. You know, one of the reasons why I, I harp on this is that, you know, if, if I don't do it, no one else will. <laughs> and, um, and it's a weird, it's a very weird sensation. You know, I write the G file, I do this podcast and I kind of, it's a tendency I've written about before. I tend to sort of collectivize and per, and anthropomorphize my writer, you know, my, 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 my reader base or now my listener base into an actual person, like I think about it, they become sort of a composite in my head. Oh, so like the the cover of Hobbes Leviathan, the the giant monarch composed of all the miniature people. That works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That <laughs> works. Um, and uh, and so one of the reasons why I know there's been a lot of guilt about you know you know how you know you you'll break my heart if you don't buy the book. And aside from being true. Uh, Don't go breaking Jonah's heart. The reason I bring it up is that, you know, I kind of feel like I've been doing all this stuff and have a relationship with readers. And then when it goes badly, um, like I did with my last book, I take it personally. And so I want to thank everybody because it hasn't gone badly. Still time to buy it. It has fallen off the New York Times bestseller list. I'm kind of optimistic that it will pop back on. It's just that last week. You had a bunch of new big selling books come out, you know, and it's on a curve on the bestseller. So sales are still strong. It's just been it's just been pushed off. And so if the sales of those don't sustain for a long time, as often happens, I, I my guess is we'll be back on the list later this summer. You guys could certainly help with that. Yeah. Make Suicide of the West the dark side of the moon of uh, political nonfiction. That would be great. Keep it on the charts for like decades. Um, buy and then do this. Do what people do with uh, Dark Side of the Moon and buy a new copy once your old copy is so dog-eared that you just can't handle it anymore. You just have to buy a new one. That's a good idea. Also, you know, people keep asking me out there whether um, – whether there is any upper boundary number 
any technical limit to the number of copies you can buy, and there, in fact, is not. Yeah, I've done the calculations on this, and I'll have the intern run them too, but just to check my math, but I, I, we don't think there is. All right, so enough with the shameless whoring on my part. Um, of, of the book. Of the book, of the book. <laughs> uh, so, like, so, true story. Uh, years ago, um, when I was still scrambling to make enough money to um, keep the lights on as a writer... I would write regularly for at our, like a monthly or a weekly, I can't even remember their frequency, column in a thing called Intellectual Capital, um, which no longer exists. I think it was started by Pete DuPont. And at the time, there was this famous joke from Dennis Miller when he was still doing SNL News where he said, the National Survey of Worst Jobs came out and once again, assistant crack whore came <laughs> in at number one, right? And it was like, it was part of the popular culture. People talked about it. And so I had this long, I was right, I wrote a piece about vice presidents and I said, you know, they're the assistant crack whores of American history or something like that. And my editor who was a young guy and very nice guy, but he just didn't know how the things work. Thought it was too blue for his pages, which is totally fine. What's not totally fine is changing it without asking me. I would have cut it and come up with a different lead instead on his own, uh, he wrote that the vice presidents are something to the effect of the assistant cro- cocaine-addicted prostitutes of American <laughs> history. And it's like, come on, man. You're just, you, can't, you can't do that to a joke. You, know, just, you can cut the joke, but you can't rewrite it like that. Anyway, but um, I was just thinking in all of my book whoring here, you're sort of like the assistant crack whore. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll accept that designation. Okay, so if anybody's still listening to this, which I, I kind of highly doubt, we should probably do a little punditry. Oh, I should say, so I was as I was saying, I was out at the Shapiro um, complex in Sherman Oaks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you forgot to discuss something. I forgot to discuss the intellectual dark web with him, which was like the only thing I planned on talking <laughs> about with him. And instead, you know, I was so friggin' exhausted. And we had just done his Sunday special, recorded it, which I think may be coming out this Sunday. I'm not sure. But, you know, his weekend interview show thing and which was really I I, I enjoyed because he actually asked me some substantive co- questions about the book rather than, you know, most of like the NPR types. They want to go very, very, very quickly past like the main argument of the book and get to Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, Ben's problem with the book is that I don't give enough emphasis on the important role of tradition and specifically religion mm-hmm. um that is well i didn't mention that earlier but that's that's a common theme of the good faith criticisms that you people don't like that you kill god at the in the first chapter but i in a very christian like way i do bring them back in the <laughs> end <laughs> um and uh uh and again I, I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand about the book is that look i i believe basically everything i write in the book i mean i'm not saying i i'm i'm uh, I'm, you know, assuming a f- argument under false pretenses. But the way I make the argument in the book is because I'm actually trying to say, you know, as I explained, the reason why I say in the first sentence there's no God in this book isn't because I don't believe in God. I believe in God. Um, it's that I'm trying to offer an argument based upon the premises of the people who are most hostile to capitalism um, and uh, to liber- to and free speech and all sorts of things. And, and so 
if I were talk if I were trying to persuade conservatives about all of this stuff, I would have emphasized different arguments. Those arguments are true too, and I so I, I think you can, you know, as I keep saying on the on the speaking tour, you know, uh, if you really want me to do a full history, I can. I can go. I can go full, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and start in on the Jews. Um, but uh, uh, the and I'm a, I think it's clear in the book. I'm a, a Hayek fanboy, and I believe there's an immense amount of knowledge and wisdom and trial and error that is embedded in all sorts of customs. You know, I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, it's, it's Chesterton's fence all the way down for me. And so I understand why people don't like me emphasizing these things or like some people are get really mad at me for, for getting something about Locke wrong or this about this or that about John Locke. I'm open to those arguments. If I got something factual wrong, I really want to hear it. But I, I, what I'm trying to be clear about is in this whole Locke versus Rousseau thing is that it's a, um, that they're symbols of a kind of thought. That the idea – I could have, you know, I could have gone with uh, Yuval Levin's uh, Burke and Payne instead of Locke and Rousseau if I wanted to um, because these differences that sometimes get called left and right, sometimes get understood as the individual versus the group, these differences run straight through the human heart. And um, – but anyway, so we had an interesting conversation with – I had an interesting, interesting conversation which should be coming out soon with Ben about all of that. But I didn't talk to him about the intellectual dark web. And um, I just don't get it. I mean, I, I, I get it. I just don't think it's a thing. And I wanted to hear him defend it. I've, I love Barry Weiss. I think she does a great job. But I read that piece twice. And it just kind of – every time she gets close to saying the intellectual dark web can be defined ideologically like this, she – backs away from it and then says, well, another factor is that they all have podcasts or alternative media platforms, right? And Welcome to the intellectual dark web, Jonah. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like – and then if – when they get close to defining making, – making that the defining feature, she backs away from it. And then there's this, uh, you know, maybe the core thing that they all believe in is in the differences between – that there are innate human differences and that these things matter and that human nature exists and all that. It's like, you know – I feel like a bit like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, you know, where Andy McCarthy is explaining the, um, uh, the ideal man. I just mm-hmm. I'm sitting there reading, hearing all these things, and I'm like, well, me, <laughs> me, me. Wow, I'm really close on this one, right? Now. <laughs> but I never heard of the intellectual dark web, so I don't feel like I'm a movement of it. You know, if I, don't, if I hadn't heard of it until like what two weeks ago, and you know, Charles Murray. Christina Hoff Summers, they're both here at AEI, or at least Charles is now emeritus, retired kind of, but, you know, he's still an AEI guy. They're apparently members of the intellectual dark web. They're not victims. They're not, you know, they haven't been pelted from the public stage. Or oh, like well, Charles Murray has. Well, I mean, I guess literally there are a couple times where they have been pelted from the public stage. Yeah. But that's happened to, you know, lots of people. And so if the definition of the intellectual dark web is that a bunch of, you know, snowflakes on college campuses have you know, had fallen to their, we- their their fainting couches when you speak there. Well, that's true of conservatives, right? So there's like a definitional uh, malleability to this thing that makes me feel a little bit like it's more of a marketing label than anything else. And, what isn't a marketing label these days? Uh, that's a good question. I'll have to ponder that one. But um, but anyway, he believes it's a real thing. He, I think he said on Twitter, I'm a fellow traveler of it, which is interesting i guess and i like a lot of people who are in this group but the only thing the only coherent thing that identifies who's a member of the intellectual dark web 
is the fact that an anonymous website has a list of people, <laughs> um, which is not exact. I mean, at least the neocons had alcove one, and you know, I mean, there are all these interesting kind uh-huh. of things. So I just find it a little. I, I, I think the piece and the the claim that this is a new movement of some kind needs to spend a little more time in the oven to fully bake um, because I think there are some problems with it. But I'm open to correction on it. And, you know, for the most part, as far as I can tell, I wish most of those people well and every success. So what do we have? I, oh, we have some punditry that we're going to do. Right? Yeah, it's almost like we're doing this this podcast in the, in the order most designed to uh, – be of the least possible interest to listeners, which is a fascinating approach. You like that? Um, no, well, I don't know. I think every now and then we can do some, um, you know, self-indulgence on this thing. And I mean, this whole, yeah. Let me know when you start with that self-indulgence. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll be interested to see how that goes. Yeah. So here we are. It's what is today? Tuesday. Tuesday, May twenty second, twenty eighteen. Um, Timeline B. Oh. Hmm. Well, I, did I just reveal something? I don't know. Let's think <laughs> um, about that. <coughs> we'll move on from that. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's not have another episode 11, dude. Um, so uh, last night I was on Special Report. We had to talk about the Mueller stuff and the um, um, North Korea stuff and all of that. And so that's sort of fresh in my head. And I should just say at the outset, I find so much of the Mueller uh, probe – stuff to be uh, many parts per billion bovine excrement that – look, I, I actually think that the Clinton – this is what the LA Times column is about today. Um, I I think that Andy McCarthy has utterly persuaded me that, that the investigation into Hillary's server was slow-walked. They knew that they weren't going to prosecute because prosecuting Hillary would also be, in effect, prosecuting the president of the United States, at least politically speaking, because Barack Obama was in on it. He knew about it. He condoned it or he tolerated it. And so it was basically understood to slow walk the thing in part because they knew that she was going to win the election anyway. And why? Um, in timeline A. In timeline A. Right. So why make a um, a permanent enemy of a famously vindictive woman? I mean, let's be clear. Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, her public persona and her public PR notwithstanding is a nasty piece of work who has a long memory for her enemies. And she was basically always the keeper of the enemies list in Clinton world, not Bill. Um, so I, I, I'm convinced of all of that. Um, I'm also convinced by Annie McCarthy and, and, and others that um, the appointment of Mueller violated at least some DOJ guidelines and was a little irregular. Um, I'm also persuaded that the, um, the investigation into Donald Trump during, in 2016, um, may not have dotted all the I's and crossed the T's properly. And that it, what you should absolutely do when you launch, launch an FBI investigation into a political campaign, no matter who's doing it. So those are all points I am willing to concede to, uh, my friends who are going to, um, you know, uh, DEFCON 1000 on this or, uh, or whatever you want to say. But, and I, my LA Times point, you know, article op-ed concedes that there is some truth to the, the sort of the federalist, to put a label on it, sort of approach to all of this. That said, first of all, if you're going to bet 
if you're going to go all in on the argument that this was a deep state effort to spy on Donald Trump and and, and destroy him, uh, you have to deal with the inconvenient fact that if the deep state um, hurt any political candidate in 2016, it was Hillary Clinton, right? Uh, and if if this was all part of some sort of nefarious skullduggery to destroy Trump, why was there no October surprise hurting Donald Trump? They certainly had enough nasty appearing things about Papadopoulos, about Carter Page, about others that they could have, if, if the goal was to hurt him and keep him from becoming president, they, you could have had a huge leak about it. They didn't do that, right? Instead, you had James Comey come out and royally screw Hillary Clinton near the, you know, uh, you know, as the election was coming to a close. I don't often say this because I cannot stand Lanny Davis, but, uh, you know, Lanny Davis has a whole book arguing that James Comey cost Hillary the election. Given how close the election was, you know, what, 100,000 votes in five counties? Less than that. Yeah, 50,000 votes. 80,000. 80,000 votes in, 50, in five counties. It really was an inside straight. So you can point to a lot of things that probably cost Hillary Clinton the election. But I think you can plausibly claim that Comey was uh, played a, a role in it. I'm sure the weather in three states played a role in it, too. I'm not saying that, you know, that's everything. But um, and yet they didn't do it. Right. And the people who are going out, I mean, you know, the people who are going full Gorka on this and, you know, talking about the embedded spy in the Trump campaign. What is this guy's name? It's Larry. Halper. Larry Halper. Lawrence Halper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a sort of a, you know, a hackish doofus who wrote a terrible book about neocons um, years ago. Um, An unforgivable offense on this podcast. Yes, <laughs> and uh, you can criti- you can be critical of, of neocons. You can't you can't you know make up stuff about them. Um, you know if you, if you couldn't be critical of neocons, we would never have Tim Carney on this show. That's true. And um, uh, and can you just tell how happy I am to be home that I have such logaria today. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I was giddy coming home. Um, I was so excited to come home and uh, see all my girls, both human and canine. And uh, so where was I? Oh, so this Halper guy, which I guess we're not supposed to name, but everybody knows who he is, right? So the idea that this guy was a spy when he had like three perfunctory conversations with uh with officials from the the Trump campaign, that's not a that's not an embedded spy. You know, that's not a mole in the operation, and it suggests all sorts of things, um, but not necessarily the things that you know the 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 you know that you will hear from on the Hannity show every night. It suggests that this was not a um, drop everything huge investigation. It may not have, in fact, been an investigation of Donald Trump at all. I mean, that's the way it's always framed is like, this was spying on Donald Trump. Maybe it was uh, an investigation of Carter Page, Papadopoulos, and this Clovis guy, or or what's his face, um, Stone, uh, Roger Stone, because the FBI had very good reason to think that these guys were in bed with the Russians. Because... Some of them were in bed with the Russians. Mm-hmm. Paul Manafort is basically, um, you, know, you know, first of all, I think the guy has hooves, but um, Paul Manafort is, for all intents and purposes, a Russian agent, right? I mean, that's where his money comes from. That's where his history comes from. Papadopoulos wanted to work with the Russians, kept begging, you know, to, to get dirt from the Russians. They all were interested in this. And so this is part of the problem is that, it is entirely possible that everybody has a point, 
right? It's entirely possible that this investigation into the Trump campaign was not done uh, by as by the book as it should have been. It is entirely possible that the investigation into Hillary's server was um, a deliberate spike. Uh, when, when I mean spike, I mean de- deliberately sort of slow walking it kind of thing. But it is also possible, and I think I would argue inarguable, that the FBI or that any serious normal person looking at the evidence that was available would have reason to be concerned that there were people on the in the Trump campaign, both because of the things Donald Trump himself said often on the campaign trail, never criticizing Putin, asking the Russians to you know to find Hillary's missing emails, all the stuff that Roger Stone said where he was basically – I mean I think you can make the case that Roger Stone was basically WikiLeaks guy in the Trump campaign. All the stuff about that people knew about Carter Page and George and, and this guy Papadopoulos, that a reasonable person could think that the Trump campaign was – might be colluding with Russia or be interested in it. And we now know that Donald Trump Jr. at that famous Trump Tower meeting, he was disappointed because the Russians – didn't collude with them, right? He thought, you know, oh my gosh, they're going to give us dirt. That's why he went in. That's why the campaign manager, Jared Kushner, the president's son, they're all in the room because the Russians promised to give dirt. And instead it was the stuff about the Magnitsky Act. And the fact that the, the campaign lied about it, the president lied about it, Donald Trump told the truth about it, apparently under oath, um, proving that at least at the highest levels of the campaign, absent the candidate himself, Trump world was eager to collude with Russia. They had the motive. They've admitted that's the hardest thing in the world to prove in conspiracy theories is the motive part, because it's very easy to connect, you know, public facts and say uh, and then ascribe a motive to it. It's almost impossible to find the conspirators to admit the motive. But that's what Donald Trump Jr. and some of these guys did. I mean, that's 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 a significant thing. And yet everyone wants to – and the fascinating thing about all of this is that none of the stuff about the server or um, um, you know, what James Comey did or didn't do, none of that stuff undermines the legitimacy of what, what Bob Mueller is doing. Now, the Andy McCarthy stuff, which I think is a legitimate and serious and, and intellectually honest position – about the letter of the law and what the guidelines are, that is legitimate. Where I disagree with, maybe not Andy, but with some of the other people who are talking about ending the Mueller campaign or the Mueller investigation, is it exists. And if if you want to make an argument that it, it shouldn't have been formulated the way it was, that's fine. But if Donald Trump ends the Mueller, investi- Mueller investigation, it is not going to be because of his legendary and adamantine commitment to... Uh, the rule of law and legal niceties, and it is a, it would be a political decision. And I, what I don't get from the Trumpers is why they think this would be in Trump's interest to do, unless they truly believe or suspect that Mueller is going to find really bad stuff on Trump. Trump has been acting like he is guilty of something, or acting at the very least that he is terrified that Mueller will find something that will embarrass him or incriminate him. For over a year, if he truly did nothing wrong, the Mueller probe would be a gift where he could just say, hey, look, I can't talk about that. I don't want to prejudice the investigation. Let it play its course. That's what politicians who have nothing to hide or nothing to worry about typically do. 
Trump has gone a different way. And it's a, you know, it's a different way. We can say that. And last thing on the rank punditry stuff, the North Korea thing seems to be unraveling. Um, I highly recommend for listeners who haven't gotten much substance out of this podcast to go back and listen to our podcast with with Nick Eberstadt and also watch the conversations with Crystal um, discussion about North Korea with Nick Eberstadt. As a free ad there. You like that? Convos with Crystal. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm sort of like Santa and Miracle on 34th Street sending people to gimbals. (laughs) And uh, I don't think this doesn't have to do with Donald Trump. This has to do with, with North Korea primarily. I don't think North Korea will ever give up voluntarily its nuclear program, just full stop. And I think, I do think that as a political matter, Donald Trump has handled this North Korea stuff really badly by building up expectations, by hyping expectations, by encouraging people. You know, he does that um, apoasis thing where he says, is that how it's pronounced? Apho- ap- apoasis? It's- my, my, my Latin knowledge is failing you here. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if that's Latin. I think that might be Greek. It might be Greek. I think it is Greek because it begins with an A, first of all, right? Um, but uh, What does that have to do with anything? I, I'll explain it off the air. No, <laughs> I don't know. I just it, it seems like one of those root, the apo thing. It's sort of like words that begin A-L. A lot of them come from... Uh, from Arabic, like algebra and all that kind of stuff. It feels like a lot of Greek stuff has that A-P-H thing. Anyway, we'll get to it. Uh, okay. I could be completely wrong. Um, I'm sure we'll get email about this. I'm sure we will. Uh, and uh, apoasis, apophasis, anyway, is the, is, the, is the rhetorical technique or tendency to say that you're not going to say something, but by denying that you're going to say it, saying it. Right. So, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, Jack Butler looks fitting, you know, fetching in his leather onesie. But a lot of people are saying that. And um, well, they will now. And so when he <laughs> says, uh, you know, he says over and over again, like, I would never say I deserve the Nobel Prize, but other people are saying it. And when he applauds when the crowd chants Nobel, it was really dumb. And I am waiting for someone, whether it's on this North Korea stuff or on the China stuff, someone, and I mean this is a good faith thing, someone please email me or tweet at me evidence that as a politician, Donald Trump is a great negotiator, the best negotiator. You know, you hear this from Sarah Huckabee Sanders and others, oh, he's just a great negotiator. The setup for this Korean thing was handled incredibly poorly. They built up expectations. They they sent the signal that Trump really wanted a win out of this almost no matter what. There are reports that he agreed to do a summit with North Korea uh, 45 minutes within first hearing about the idea. And I think generally I'm with Noah Rothman on this stuff. The symmetry is is overrated. But also on the China stuff, if you read the accounts of how this, you know, this sort of uh, trade war armistice that we're in was done, these were, I mean, again, I know I understand that Trump wasn't in the room for a lot of this, but it's a friggin' clown show. And China, it, by all appearances, seems to be eating our lunch on this trade stuff. And and I think it's a it's an interesting dynamic. I might write about it about how Trump actually benefits from these kinds of things because he, you know as a as a former condo salesman, he's all about you know the sizzle, not the steak. Right? He'll tell you you know whatever you want to hear to get you in this condo today, and then the follow through is later after you've given a deposit, and he doesn't really worry about it. And and so he gets all of this favorable attention. I mean, you know, Sean Hannity doing the full Nobel Peace Prize thing. You know, Comrade Trump is going to deliver the greatest wheat harvest the Urals have ever seen kind of stuff. 
And same thing with on China. Trump is fighting. Trump is winning. Trump is all this kind of stuff. And so he gets all the press up front because he has always declared the winner preemptively. And then when the actual details come out, they're actually a sop to the establishment and the globalists, right? Because the market loves the fact that we basically surrendered on, on the trade stuff for now. But no one really is, you know, that's not going to get hyped, you know, in, in Fox primetime. That's not going to get hyped on talk radio. What gets hyped is the sizzle and the stake goes to Wall Street, goes to, you know, and, and look, I'm glad that the trade stuff has been called off. I'm not sure. I mean, I really actually did want us to win some stuff on the intellectual property front. But you see this sort of time and time again where the talking points get fed to the base as victories and the actual substance gets fed to the donors and the establishment, um, which is why the stock market you know, went up after this China news, um, because Trump didn't actually get any wins on China. Um, but what he did get was a lot of favorable press coverage on China. And the wins go to, you know, I mean, I'm sure our friend Scott Lincecum is, you know, whistling zippity doodah out of his nethers, you know, these days because the trade stuff seems to be on hold. But it's this weird dynamic where his biggest fans mostly get rhetoric, right? Whether it's Colin Kaepernick and the flag or whether it's getting tough on China and the people who actually get the wins, some of them are movement conservatives when it comes to things like the courts and all the rest, but the populist base, what exactly is it getting other than really entertaining TV? And it's not entirely clear to me. All right. Jack, have I missed anything? I know you hated this podcast. I could tell. You're just that face of disgust on the entire time. Well, I, I think you're under you're understating the value of entertaining TV. That's what our civilization is all about now. It is what a lot of my civilization is about, but it's also, you know, one of the arguments in the book is that when you start watching politics as if it's entertainment, you're basically letting your tribal mind govern how you interpret facts and and politics, and that is really dangerous. Yeah, but it's also a lot more fun. It is a lot more fun. I mean, now you sound like my mom, who just thinks this is all so much fun, so, and it's entertaining. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I just, I don't, I don't, I I get why, why people think a lot of this is fun, and I admit some of it is fun, but... That can't be your highest value in politics. Oh, why not? See, now I sound like a real young person. So what is that? What is what is the line? There's the Warren Zevon song, was it Numb as a Statue, right? Where he says, let's do another bad one then, because I like, the, I like it when the blood drains from Dave's face, which is a reference to, to Letterman. I kind of feel like I should do more of these incredibly self-indulgent podcasts just because they so clearly annoy you. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I didn't realize I looked annoyed, but uh, yeah. I guess I can't control it. Yeah, so uh, do a self-indulgent po- podcast to, to own Jack Butler. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, I actually think, what are the rules about using something like sampling something like that in the, for like the opening of the show? Uh, I'll worry about that. Um, okay. Um, and a lot of people are talking about the opening music of this show, which I've not, I've not listened to. <laughs> um, but uh, the we'll people spoke on on what they wanted, and I gave it to them. So, because I was thinking, I would I, I, for this one, if we can't do the Warren Zevon thing, doing the uh, Manamana thing from the Muppets, from you know that song, do 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 Manamana, do do do. Oh, that's from the Muppets. Okay, well, I didn't, I didn't realize. I think it's from the Muppets. It's from there were puppets that did it. This was my experience as a child. It's in my head because. Michael Strain wrote some, tweeted something about our colleague here at AEI, tweeted something about monopsony. Oh. <laughs> and, I, and I admitted on Twitter that for decades, whenever I hear the word monopsony, 
um, uh, that song immediately comes into my head, and I go monopsony, do 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 do, and um, and it's like an earworm, and it gets stuck in lots of people's heads. Well, this will this will be my final comment on this on this episode, but I'll if it, if that is Muppet related, then I have to hate it because I've never liked the Muppets. Something about them just always creeped me out. I don't know. No, not a Muppet fan. You're dead to me. I I, I love the Muppets. I love the Muppet Show. I got to say that one of the absolute best things ever done on public television or any television was Monster Piece Theater starring uh, Alistair Cookie with uh, uh, the Cookie Monster as um, as Alistair Cook in a, like a silk smoking jacket. <laughs> and he went, Hello, you know, and do his you know welcome to Monster Piece Theater, and then they would have Grover. Starring in the uh, in the thirty nine steps, and it's just him climbing thirty nine <laughs> steps or something. Uh, no, I really like the Muppets. I, I'm torn about the race, latest Muppet movies. I get the desire to make them relevant, but if you if you're creeped out by Muppets, you should go back and look at the original Jim Henson Muppet stuff that they did on Saturday Night Live, like its first season. That stuff is weird. <laughs> um, I mean, that's just straight up weird. I don't know if the. I assume it's on YouTube, but it's 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 super stony and weird. It's not like kid stuff. It's 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 strange. It makes you feel unsafe. At least that's at least it did in memory. I haven't seen it in a long time. All right, I'm going to try and do another podcast this week. I don't know how that's going to work because um, I got to go to again. I'm going to Kenyon on Thursday, and um, uh, and I got so much other stuff to do and i again please let me know if you hated this podcast because we can you know this is one way we can sort of market test these things if you hate the the just rambling self-indulgence then um maybe i'll do it more <laughs> no but <laughs> i don't to, know to own the libs just to own the libs yeah no um but you know as a as dr johnny fever said booger and uh um but i just i'm just so giddy to be home and um it was such a grueling couple of weeks uh, that I just wanted to sort of, and I feel like I talked to all of you because I mean, everywhere I went, I saw, um, you know, remnant fans and some glop fans even, um, um, I signed a bunch of books, you know, hashtag never put hordes. <laughs> and, um, uh, and so anyway, I'm, I'm just really grateful. Oh, and by the way, if you send a self stamp, a self addressed stamped envelope to me, um, care of the American enterprise Institute, 1789 Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, Northwest. Northwest. I will send you a signed book plate, which is basically a sticker that has my name on it, and I can't sign it. You can stick it inside the cover of your book um, if you would like that. I'm going to take it on faith that you will actually use it in your newly purchased copy of Suicide of the West. Uh, <laughs> but if you want it for one of my other books or for some really weird, creepy voodoo thing, that's fine too. And uh, anyway, thanks again to everybody. Check out JonahGoldberg.com podcast uh, on, on Twitter. We are uh, at the at, at Jonah Remnant. Gmail is the remnant pod at gmail.com. And uh, please, if you can, give us a review. Subscribe on iTunes, Twitter, Fitcher, Fitcher, whatever one of those <laughs> things are. And um, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Let's do another bad one then, because I like it when the blood drains from Dave's face. <laughs> <laughs>